really all we're supposed to do is provide a buffet table mm. and 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 then prepare him so that he can make the choices about what he wants to consume for his life himself. And so the trip to Brazil was just part of that. He's been provided a buffet table and he now wants to go way on this end of the table and eat. <laughs> Welcome to another episode of Ham Listening. I'm your host, Dr. Joan, and I am being joined by Nathaniel Turner on this episode or this series of uh, our podcast. This week, we are talking about parenting. We are talking about education, the African-American, diversity, humanity. We're diving deep into some, some uh, really profound territories. Life by backward design. These are all the elements. Welcome to the show, Nate. Thank you for having me. So let me uh, tell you a little bit about this man that is in front of me. Uh, Nate Turner is an entrepreneur, a renowned speaker, author, philanthropist, and leading parental empowerment activist. I just love that name. The Human Propulsion Engineer is the author of multiple books, including Journey Forward, How to Use Journaling to Envision and Manifest the Life You Want or Wanted. Uh, the Amazing World of STEM, Raising Superman, Stop the Bus, Education Reform in 31 Days, and It's a Jungle Out There, Powerful Parenting Lessons Inspired by the Lion King. Who helped you to come up with all of your titles, Nate? Nobody. Nobody. <laughs> the creator. Yes. <laughs> Certainly something bigger than me. I'm not that smart. Well, I love you, them. I love them, right? Well, so, if, if you like them, I should give credit to somebody else. If you don't, <laughs> I'll take the blame. Nate appears regularly in numerous national media outlets. He is a TED Talk speaker who strives daily to change the world. Nate happily shares his template for living our best life, including being intellectually ambitious, globally and culturally competent, and humanitarian driven. So. Nate, I mean, like, you're obviously going for the superstar, you know, you're going to ding the bell of the universe, right? And so <laughs> I just love that, you know, you talk about, or you have the book Raising Superman, mm -hmm. I just love that. And this is a collection of beautifully written letters from, from you to your son. And it also serves as a tool for parents to improve their relationship with their children. So talk to me about where that book came from, where in you did that book rise from? Yeah, the simplest word is to say love. Mm. I so loved a child and was so concerned that I might mess up the relationship like the one my father and I shared. Mm. And I thought yeah, I should write him. Well, in first, I wrote notes to him before he was born, before I knew if we were having a boy or girl. Yes. And and once he was here, I would write notes about the things that I wanted to happen for his life. So like being intellectually ambitious, globally and culturally competent, humanitarian driven. Yes. But one day as a two year old, he asked me for mail as we walked to the mailbox together and he insisted that he get mail. He's quite an insistent person still. <laughs> he demanded he get mail and his dad abiding by what the child tells him to do, went to, <laughs> to, to uh, Target and got some gift cards and greeting cards and uh, came back and started writing him uh, a note so then I could mail him these gift cards and greeting cards. And what happened in, after that shortly was that I realized that there was not enough space on the greeting cards and the gift cards yeah. to express how much I loved him. 
Yeah. So I just started to write him letters. And so I've been writing him ever since. How obedient you are. So, you know, one of the things (laughs) that I say is in the everyday, as we have conversations with people, they are really guiding us into the place where we're supposed to be. And if we are attentive and we listen to that guidance, there is this flow that just brings us right in. And so he says, well, I want a letter and you flow right into that place of loving him through writing. Absolutely. And learn a lot about myself in the process. It's cathartic for someone who suffers a broken relationship. Um, It's a way to start thinking about, well, not only the faults of my father, but perhaps some of the struggles of my father, maybe why my father was only able to give what he gave and maybe what he gave, there's some value in what he gave. And now I'm getting ready to give some of the things that were good to my son and I get to avoid some of the things. And so there, there was some of that. Um, Do you have a child who learns to read by reading his father's letters? That's a, you know, that's an incredible thing in and of itself. Yes. Um, You learn that you can write this person who's two as if he's 22 you can yes. write this person if they're four, as if they're 44, such that the letters always have value and meaning in their life. So, yeah. And then now to see him sometimes take those very words that I used and turn them back on me. <laughs> <laughs> and or uh, the be- better part is that he shares them with other people. That, yes. part, that part makes it all very incredible. Yes, it is incredible. So what do you hope for him when you think about this future that you want for him? You know, I, I will come back to your dad, sure. but you know, what do you hope for him? What do you want to see in this 44 year old man when you envision what his life might look like? Well, I, I want for him. So, so I, what I most wanted for him is two things. One, I wanted him to know that his father loved him. Um, I wanted him to feel like, I was his pal. There's a scene in The Lion King very early on. That's why it's one of my favorite things where where Simba, after getting in trouble, sits on top of Mufasa's head and he says, but dad, we're pals. Right. And that's, and that's what I've always wanted. I guess that may be more for me than it is for him. But I think it, it, at some point in time, it's like he's going to realize if he hasn't already. I'm, I'm sure he has. But the depths of it, he'll realize and appreciate even more yeah. that it was really cool to have a father who you could say was your pal. Yeah. Um, but what I most want for him is for him to, to, to dream audaciously and then chase those dreams relentlessly to make those things happen. And he's been doing that. So I'm ecstatic about the life he's lived so far. It's far beyond what I could have imagined. And um, he keeps ratcheting it up and keeps telling <laughs> me to do something else <laughs> to support his dream. Yeah. So. Well, you created him, right? I, I, I did. So the monster. You're going to have to continue <laughs> to flow with him. <laughs> I, I, I do. And it's a, it's a wonderful give and take relationship because, again, now he tells me, uh, hey, man, um, you need to do X, Y, and Z. Or, hey, man, you could do better. I'm like, all right, all right. you can do more, Dad. Okay. Yes, yes, I love it. So one of the things I often think about our generation is that we've been silent for a long time. You know, we've had our moments of suffering and and I think we were called the silent generation for a reason because we were wounded and we moved into a place where we quieted ourselves. And then our generation is the one that's finding those places of healing. And it is now in the healed place that we turn and we begin to do something different for the generation that is behind us. So they get to stand on a shoulder 
of healed people. Well, I'm going to say for those of us who've chosen the path of healing. Right, and, right. and so you had to heal from some stuff. And it sounds like father wound was one of those things. So what was your relationship with your dad like? Complex. Um, yeah. you, you know, it depends on where you are on the journey. You feel differently about the people you're on the journey with. Yes. Uh, my father is gone. He passed in 2018, uh, Mother's Day of, of 2018. Uh -huh. um, I've had lots of time to reflect and realize that whoever my father was, he can never be anybody. He cannot physically be different. The mm. only way he can be different is if he's different in my mind. Mm -hmm. So I've seen my father over the past five years differently than perhaps I saw him while he was alive. Yes. For better or for worse, it is what it is. I can't do anything about it, but I see him differently. So my father was a staunch disciplinarian. Mm. He's a man who would tell me if a man wants to eat, a man has to work. He's mm -hmm. a guy who told me as a 10-year-old, he would not buy me a 10-speed bike, that if I wanted it, I should work for it and get it myself. He walked me to the garage, pointed Ooh. out to me a lawnmower, a rake, and a shovel, and he yes. said, I will loan you the money for the first tank of gas for your lawnmower. Wow. After that, it's on you. Wow. Within, yeah. Within two months, I bought my 10-speed bike. So like there's these are these incredible and valuable lessons. My father is a guy who would make you come home and watch 60 minutes and write book reports. He's also the guy when I got on punishment once, he made me stay in the house during the entire summer and read the Ebony Jet Encyclopedia of Black History that I could not leave. Wow. So, yeah. Wow. So that that's that's my father. But he also coached my bitty basketball team and there were days and we had fun. But I, I don't remember, I don't have a lot of memories of lots of fun with my dad. Right. But I do have these lessons that I understand that make me, you know, who I am today. It sounds like the knowledge that he forced you to attain, and I'm just gonna use the word force. Perhaps that's not the word that you would use. It's a good word. <laughs> <It's a> good <laughs> word. <laughs> uh, he forced you to attain. Uh, put you into it solidified a foundation and it perhaps wasn't with gentleness or grace or a whole lot of mercy but now you can use all that that was poured into you to now create something where there is gentleness where there is kindness where there is mercy and sometimes a little force still but yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like okay I get it sometimes you're right dad sometimes sometimes there is no growth without friction I understand that yes so you stand on his shoulder and now your son stands on yours. So when you started writing the book and, or putting it together for parents, mm -hmm. um, were you hoping to position it so that parents would make their life, make the children's life enjoyable and more gentle and more kind and less forceful? So I would be completely transparent. I, I had no intentions of writing anything. I was just writing letters to a child. And I don't know, it may not appear in my bio, but the short story is my son is a 16 year old, um, told me that he was done with high school, that he had done all he needed to do. He had earned all of his high school credits, essentially by the end of his junior year, that he had earned 33 college credits. He felt like it was a waste of time. I've been talking to him about dreaming. Mm -hmm. His dream was to chase his uh, dream of playing professional soccer and he needed to lead the country. And so I then took the letters that I'd written, some of them, and put them in a binder because he moved to Brazil. Wow. And, yeah. So he's going to be 7,000 miles away from us. And I'm like, okay, well, I'm not sure how we're going to have this conversation. This is 2012. So 
we were just starting to, you know, there's Google, um, there's Google chat at the time, but there's a few things, but there's not a lot of communication yeah. and internet in Brazil is not great and the electricity not great. So I'm like, okay, listen, I'm going to put some of these letters in a binder. And yeah. I did. And then went to Rio for a few days because every man should go to Rio by himself for a few days. Yes. And, and I returned to the academy where he was after my wife told me to go back because she thought, didn't think he was going to make it. And he said, Hey, I reread three of the letters. Did you put them in any particular order? I remember my, my purpose. I'm going to be fine. But whenever I do return, we're going to publish these letters and share them with other families. Because when you tell me I can do something, not only do I know I can do it, I know it's going to be done. Wow. So he freed himself um, and then decided to chase the dream. Yeah, yeah, he he was he it had enough and you tell people you tell children that they can dream and then one day they tell you really do you really mean that yeah like, yeah I, I think so <laughs> <laughs> let me look back at your mom and see if she's in agreement yeah. right so would your dream have been he went to college and then he went to play soccer would your dream have been that he became the entrepreneur and you know built the empire you know and then of course you have to accept what his dream is i want to sure. play soccer yeah, no. So I think w when we set out, we the dream was to make sure that he could meet the academic standards of Harvard. That was the the before he was born. That was the goal. Yeah. Um, and but as you start to see him develop as a as a human, you're like, okay, uh, we also want him to speak a, a, num a number of different languages because the world is is big as it is small, and yeah. we want him to certainly care for some things greater than himself. And you you watch him evolve and pick up things that he starts to enjoy, and then one day you're like really all we're supposed to do is provide a buffet table mm. and 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 then prepare him so that he can make the choices about what he wants to consume for his life himself and so the trip to brazil was just part of that he's been provided a buffet table and he now wants to go way on this end of the table and eat so <laughs> um, <laughs> understood so on your website, you mentioned that you intentionally backward design your son's life. And I gather that's part of what it was, that buffet mm -hmm. table. Mm -hmm. So, you know, he's intellectually astute. He's globally competent, both in language as well, just as, you know, going into the different spaces that there are and he's socially conscious, right? So mm -hmm. do you feel like the direction that he's gone, do you feel successful? Do I feel successful? Um, As a parent, I mean. Yeah, I think, so the, that's an interesting question. I don't know that I feel successful and I don't know that I have the right to feel successful. Mm -hmm. I think this, whether or not I'm successful as a parent is the is the story for the child to tell. Yes. Right, I think too often parents say that they're great parents and it, they haven't even bothered to check in with the children to see right. what the child says. My dad might've said, I, I use this analogy all the time. So you might say to me, hey, Nate, what kind of father you are? And yeah. I'd say, I'm fabulous. Yeah. And then you say, well, what do you think your son says about you as father? I was like, he thinks I'm the greatest father in the world. And then you would get a chance to talk to me. He said, my father's a complete jerk. <laughs> the question is, who am I? Yes. Right. right. Yeah. And so I'm not, I'm not who I thought I was. I'm certainly not who I thought the child thought I was. I am exactly who the person I'm in relationship sees me as being. And so if the child says his dad is a jerk, then forever I will be, as long as I live and he's telling my story, <laughs> I'll be a jerk. So. Unless he transitions like you did for your- yeah, Unless he transitions, exactly. And right, I think right. 
we all transition, right? We all understand right. life a little bit differently, especially as we age, right? Right. But the child still is the person telling the story about what kind of parent the parent is. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think we don't tell our, our parents' story differently until we see them as individual people, right? Yeah. As yeah. not just the person who gave birth to us or created us. Yeah, I think I looked at my dad solely as, as my mother's husband mm. um, and not as, as not and not a 360-degree holistic person with struggles and trials and tribulations like everybody else. Yeah, yeah. So Nate has been privileged to speak at some of America's top universities and corporations. His story and work have touched the lives of educators and students of all ages. Business, governmental agencies, and community leaders find great value in his out-of-the-box perspective. I don't think you're that much out of the box, do you, Nate? <laughs> well, I think when you, for example, when you talk to parents about taking control of their own children's lives and stop stop outsourcing things. I think that it's not out of the box to me. It seems normal to me, but that's not the way we behave. If you, if you say to people, you know, Aristotle said it long ago that you bring me a child by seven, I'll show you the man. Yeah. Um, the child psychologists indicate that most of a child, certainly the brain is developed, their social cues and so forth happen, but before seven. And yet the folks who have the children mostly sit on our hands and yeah. wait for somebody else to do it. So I think like those kinds of things become out of the box. Some of the things we've talked about recently, like through the book Amazing World of STEM, is developing different kinds of communities that we call nano communities that are completely off the grid and everybody has their own energy that's Love individualized it. and stuff like that. And homes that are 3D printed and calculated yes. so people can live at a minimum wage standard of living and still live a great life. So yes. those kind of out the box. I love that. So let's explore that a little bit, you know, because I think, um, I think we do outsource a lot, but I think this world that we live in, it creates the story and the narrative that we must outsource that, you know, we must do all of these things like send the kids to this club and that educational mm -hmm. thing. And, you know, and, and they must have this and they must have these electronics and those sorts. And it's all outsourcing yes. because it's, buying entertainment it's buying education and you're not you're not controlling any of the content that is present there so this beautiful idea that you have mm -hmm. <laughs> what's the vision what like you know at the end of the day when people live in these communities what do you want them to be able to attain what do you want them to have access to so the very first thing that that I wanted to happen in this community is that that students families, primarily families who were underserved, would have an opportunity for once to receive an education that was not based, as in the case of in, in the U.S., that was not based on zip code. And yeah. zip code generally means that uh, families who have a higher net worth, who can buy, can afford to buy really nice homes, typically live in the best school districts, and families who cannot afford a home and live, live in apartments and so forth, generally live in the schools that are the, the least a good school systems. Yes. So I wanted to create a school that had that the economic situation had no bearing on the kind of education that the child got. Mm. So I was looking at the old schools here in the early part, the late sorry, the early part of the 20th century, there was a series of schools called the Rosenwald schools. And they were schools based upon the number of teachers, not the number of classrooms. Mm. So it might be a one teacher 
school or two teacher school, and there's a, a removable wall that allowed there to be two classrooms or a, yes. a wall to remove and be a community center. And I thought, what if we had a school like that? And then yeah. we did some of this, we looked at some of the science around building communities and realized 151 people were about all people could interact with at one time. So we said in the school, we would never have more than 151 students. And so we break that down to the number of teachers and the all the education we backward designed to make sure that all the students could meet whatever the top educational institution was in the world that can meet those standards no guarantee they could go there because those schools play these silly games that they do yeah. but if I wanted to prepare someone to not have some of the debt and so kind of, those kind of things associated with going to school yeah if I can get them to the schools with higher endowments it's less likely that they'll have student debt and then we said well now we need that's great but what are we going to do for the parents well we need to be able to make sure families can own a home so we thought about 3d printing homes and realized people could 3D print a home for about a little bit six thousand dollars. So really? Mm -hmm. Yep. Framing could, installation. Mm -hmm. the, we could solarize the home and put solar panels. I want to say in between five and seven solar panels and something like a power wall, which is something Tesla has, but uh, BMW makes one. Some other companies make power walls that yes. families could capture the sunlight and stored in these huge batteries and the yes. batteries to be in their garages or wherever. And then when they needed the, the extra battery power. So that's, that's my son's area of expertise. He's receiving his PhD from Carnegie Mellon in electrical computer engineering and focus on power systems and renewable energy. So I'm like, okay, we'll do that. And we'll build, we'll have gardens. So we'll no longer have food deserts and we'll do aerial gardening, which is requirement of only like 10% of the water that's required for for a traditional uh, um, horizontal garden. So we just started thinking through all those things and came up with a community and realized that if a family here could only afford about $750 or so, $1,000 I believe it was a month for rent, they could live in this community, own their own home, and by the end of the 30 year period, have, have amassed about $3 million. Wow. That's and I'm not asking them to put any money in the retirement plan. I'm just saying the difference between what you spend on all these other things, if we could change the way you live, you could save about $3 million at about 8% return. There's always the structure. Mm -hmm. And then there's always the structure that's in here, right? So let's talk about where we are as a people right now and the structure that's in here in the mind. Mm -hmm. And then, because no matter what you develop, right? You require the right mindset because you have the good intention of, you know, basically leveling the playing field. You have the good intention of being able to harness uh, the resources that we have and utilize them as efficiently as possible. You have the good intention of ensuring that every kid has the opportunity to excel in every regard. It's a beautiful intention. And then you have the people. <laughs> so what do you need to do to prepare people to live in a community like this? Yeah, that's the the um, three million dollar question. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, you know, you're 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 absolutely right. I think there's there's some uh, mind shifts that need to be made. And I'm not sure how um, to shift everyone i'm not sure how to shift everyone's mind but i do believe if you shift a few and people could actually see it then then they could believe it i think so 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 many people live by this idea that i have to see it before i can believe it and some of us believe it long Without before we see it, it right yes. 
And so you have to give people an opportunity to see it. And then they'll say, oh, okay, that's, that's, that's possible. Yes. Um, yeah. So that's, that's another part of it. I think people have to see, um, like in, this, in, in, in the U.S., we talk a great deal about, well, I don't talk about, I hate the term, but generational wealth. Yeah. So now, so now lots of folks are talking about that and, and my, but you are losing sight of why, of the psychology of money. Yeah. You're talking about creating wealth and I'm just asking you, why does money even matter? Yeah. Yeah. Right. If I was looking at Maslow's hierarchy of needs, well, money matters to you so you can have food, shelter, clothing. But yeah. the things that you think you're going to get above in the pyramid have nothing to do with money. So you are chasing money for self-esteem. Money's not going to give you self-esteem. Money's not going to have reach you self-actualization. You're not going to get self-realization through that. That's the bottom of the pyramid are money. But you somehow think that the things at the top that you can buy, so you're chasing that you know, like a hamster in a, in a, in a wheel, you're never going to catch it. So how do we get them off the hamster wheel? Well, again, for something we, like I said, we do with children, which is easier because they fortunately haven't, they're not yet hamsters on the wheel. So the objective is let's not ever put them on a wheel. If we give them, if we give them the buffet table, then they'll be able to make better decisions and they maybe won't be chasing this wheel. I don't know necessarily how to get all the people off the wheel, except to say, if we could finally build one community, <laughs> uh, maybe folks will look at it and say, oh, that's not a bad idea. I'm, I'm under no illusions that everybody. Uh, yeah, I, I agree. Better. I think you have to have that example and then you have to display it and you have to compete with the image that's being displayed right now mm-hmm. and, and then reposition it as that alternative. But, you know, not many people stream out of what is that media stream that we're in right now mm-hmm. and come mm-hmm. over to the alternative. In fact, children often, when you prepare them right, they go through this natural ev- evolutionary stage of migrating into the heavy media stream. And then maybe in their 30s, maybe in their 40s, they might want to come back on over uh, to that alternative lifestyle that they were originally introduced to. So the human is the, the pivotal factor in anything that we create, because as you know, they had the projects, right? They had the projects. And this was back in the, what, the 60s, the 70s, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, maybe mm-hmm. even as late as the 80s. And the projects, for those of you who don't know, are these housing schemes that were built here in Canada in the States. And the idea was for those people who are impoverished or can't afford to work or not able to work, let me not say afford to work, but they're not able to function at the level so that they can um, uphold a job uh, and then have an income. The projects were created with this same intention. Let's give them the opportunity to afford the rent and then at least the opportunity to then live a a life. But it requires the mindset to be shifted. And then oftentimes when you bring people the impoverished people into a, a geographic area, what's happening is you have a field of energy that you are creating and then you create a poverty field that then few people can come out of. So I love your idea. And then the only thing I think is the people, the people, <laughs> like how do you manage the people? <laughs> that, that, that is, that is always the challenge changing the hearts and minds of people i guess you do you do it one person at a time you hope that it's a little bit like a 
like a, an unfortunate term, but a little bit like a pandemic, which is that one person gets affected or infected at a yes. time and hopefully other folks catch on and, and realize that. Again, I always tell people that but it's funny you say people that I don't like people, which <laughs> which is which explains both of our dilemmas. Like I love people, like that's what I'm supposed to do. But liking liking people is much more difficult yes. than loving people. So that that's a challenge. Thank you.